0: I'm so glad to be back with you guys tonight. Uh, first, let me start by apologizing for my voice. Apparently, last week, I thought I was just getting a scratchy throat, but it's definitely coming down with a cold, so uh, you guys will have to work with me tonight as I try to clear my throat and stuff and make it through the night, but by God's help, we'll, we'll make it through, huh? Um, anyways, yeah, thank you so much for, for bringing me back this week, and uh, I uh, really did enjoy uh, last week, and like I said, I think that that wilderness message was just really important for me as well, personally, and uh, and this week, we're going to be dealing with, so last week, we dealt with the theme of the wilderness in the Old Testament. This week, we're going to be dealing with the theme of the promised land um, in the Old Testament, and uh, I was realizing in preparation for this, I'm like, between these two themes, this is too much to cover. This is pretty much the whole Bible <laughs> like you're trying to cover and, and, and put into two weeks, so uh, so bear with me, we got a, a lot of scripture to cover tonight as well. Um, but I think you'll see that uh, it connects nicely, and, uh, and there's some real encouragement that I think that we can take away from this as well. And I also like that, okay, last week, the wilderness week was, uh, of course, coming before Good Friday, and we're going with, through the wilderness of Jesus up to the cross. And, uh, and this week, of course, is after Easter, so now we're celebrating that He is risen, and, uh, and this week we'll have a much more uh, message on, on the hope that we have uh, in the promised land, which might be getting a little bit too far ahead of myself there. But uh, last week we talked about how the wilderness is a bridge to something else. It's not a destination, but it's a bridge. So what was the destination then for the Israelites is there in the wilderness is, of course, the promised land. And so this was their hope. Now, I will give a little bit away of the conclusion here. Uh, What is our hope as we're in the wilderness is, of course, the promised land of being with God in the end when he creates the new heavens and new earth. That's where we're going to conclude the night. But I want you to see these themes stretching all the way back into the very beginning. So, uh, you can begin turning in your Bibles to Exodus 6. We'll get there in just a minute. But I want to talk about a few. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Expectations. Of the promised land okay so put yourself in the mindset of being with the Israelites in the wilderness you've got your slavery and affliction of Egypt behind you and you've got this promise of the promised land in front of you and so what are some of your expectations as you're dwelling in this wilderness of this land that is to come So first of all, this land is going to be called a land flowing with milk and honey. This is another way of saying that this is going to be a very fertile land. Last week we dealt with the idea of honey from a rock, this idea of um, God's blessings and provisions in the midst of improbable circumstances, and this idea of a land flowing with milk and honey means that this is a land of fertility, this is a land of plenty, this is opposite of the wilderness. Point two there, it is a land opposite of the land of oppression, of Egypt. It is a land of freedom. This is an important uh, dichotomy to get in your mind, and um, Exodus 3.17, we'll talk about this, and and these are just example passages. Really, you'll see these themes in multiple different passages, but um, there's this idea that, okay, Uh, God has brought you out of the land of slavery. Remember last week we talked about what an important central image that is for the Old Testament and how often over and over and over again as you read through your Bibles, underline that phrase or just take note of that phrase whenever it says, the God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. So once again, you're standing here in the wilderness and on the one hand you've got the land of oppression and the land of slavery and on the other hand, uh, this promised land, a land of freedom. So, on one, you know, you've got the austerity, the, the wilderness, and then a land of plenty, a land of slavery and oppression here in Egypt, and a land of freedom and deliverance in the promised land. It is a land of promise and faithfulness to your fathers. Um, Yahweh will frequently make connections with this is the land that I promised to your forefathers, the lands of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God connects this to his faithfulness and to his promises, that I promised to bring my people out of the land of slavery and into the promised land. And so this is evidence of God's faithfulness now that as you're standing here in the wilderness, that God is bringing you forth out of the land of Egypt and into that promised land. Now that last one, we're going to have to read that last one. So Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 9 is what we're going to be dealing with in particular. It is a relationship, a land of relationship with Yahweh. So Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, let me provide you some context here. Um, This is just after, so the the burning bush, that's already happened. Um, Moses has already gone before Pharaoh and uh, Pharaoh has just told the Israelites that, Uh, they're going to have to, you know, double their quota. We're going to, no straw will be given to you and you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Uh, So the Hebrews are then crying out to uh, Moses and Aaron, you know, what what are you doing? You're making our lives even worse. So then Moses goes back before the Lord. Once again, when you see the L-O-R-D in all caps there, you've got the name of Yahweh. Goes back before Yahweh and he says, you know, what should I do? So verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There's that recall of memory again, the God of your fathers. As God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners or foreigners, travelers, wanderers, aliens, And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. What I want you to take close attention to there in verse 7 I will take you out to be my people, and I will be your God. This phrase, which I tried to kind of track down, occurs in various forms in different parts of the Old Testament. Uh, but it's a key phrase to kind of keep in mind because you see in this kind of this mutuality, this relationship between God and his people. And it suggests, it it really um, emphasizes this intimate relationship that God and his people will have together. And this phrase, uh, which takes different forms, as I said, Happens all the time in the Old Testament. This is another thing, a theme to bring out as you read the Old Testament on your own. Jeremiah in chapter 31, as he's going to talk about uh, the exiles coming back out of Babylon, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. He'll use this same phrase in a little bit of a different form God and his people living together. So there's this essential relationship and this um, utopia idea of what is this utopia of the promised land? It is essentially, first and foremost, this relationship of God and his people being together. And uh, so that's just a really essential theme to bring out in the Old Testament as you you read through it on your own. So similar to last week, I want to um, go ahead and talk about what is the promised land, like we talked about last week, what is the wilderness? Okay. So last week, let's see if this plays. Last week we talked about the wilderness. There we go. This is Dan in the north. Last week we talked about how dry and how desert and wilderness the land of Israel is. But Israel is a land of extremes. I don't want you taking away from this this idea that all of Israel is this wilderness. Uh, Because look at this. This is in Israel as well. And uh, you see just tons of water coming out of uh, springs at the foot of Mount Hermon. And uh, if any of you have ever traveled to the north of Israel in Dan... Uh, There's this whole park where you just walk through dense, dense vegetation and you see all these springs. One of the only places where you can uh, drink the water is it's coming up out of the springs. Of course, um, you know, as Americans, we're very cautious about drinking the water of another country, but because this is coming straight off the the snows of Mount Hermon, uh, you can actually drink the water uh, straight out of the spring. Beautiful, clear, very, very cold water and tons of it as you see. These are the springs that will feed the Jordan River, which will flow down into the Sea of Galilee, and eventually all the way down uh, into Jordan. Um, I'm sorry, the Dead Sea. All right, this is that same satellite image that we were looking at last week, and we talked last week a little bit about how the rains work, how the prevailing winds across the Mediterranean bring that uh, dense moist air up over the central hill country and as it goes up and over it rains and on the other side of the hills you've got the wilderness because it's in the rain shadow of the central hill country um, but on the western side, I us get my west and east turned around when I'm thinking about this map on the western side it is um, good land that gets plenty of rainfall uh, that is good uh, farming land, especially down on the coastal plain. And we talked about last week how this land is sometimes called the Levant, or literally the land bridge. And this is a land bridge which connects the continents. And uh, that's why we've got the, the arrows running through there, not technically precise along the, the way of the road there. But there's um, the way of uh, the Via Maris, or the way of the sea, which cuts up along the uh, coastal plain where the Philistines were at, and then cuts in around the Jezreel Valley up towards the Sea of Galilee. And this is the primary road that's going to connect Mesopotamia and Egypt. So all that trade has to come through Israel. You've got, of course, the Mediterranean on the one hand, and on the on the other side, you've got uh, dense wilderness where there's absolutely nothing. So that creates this kind of bottleneck effect where... Uh, where God's going to place His chosen people, and I think this is a very significant thing to think about, uh, because out of all the places in the world, you, you think I'm not going to. Uh, if, you, if you choose, you know, where you're going to live, I might choose some place like Great Britain. You know, you could, you could, uh, you've got an island, you're secluded, you've got plenty of, you know, water between you and all the other people, and it's, you know, wet and good farming country and everything else. But God's going to place his people in one of the hardest to defend places on the planet and one of the most strategic locations too for all these other empires to control. Uh, As all the world empires come around, they're gonna wanna control this land bridge and control the trade because if you can control this route, if you can control key sites along the trade routes, you can essentially control the world from this point. And so this is where Uh, You know, as God uh, promises to Abraham, you're going to have many descendants and through your descendants, the world is going to be blessed. Uh, And we understand that as Jesus. But in addition, for many Jews, they'll understand that as, you know, this is the responsibility of the Jewish people to represent God to the nations. And so God strategically places them here on this land bridge uh, in order to uh, represent himself uh, to the world. So it is a diverse land, as we, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, in the north, of course, you've got all those dense springs. You've got the Sea of Galilee and uh, several important plain lands. The central hill country, while it does get rain, uh, is very, very rocky and uh, is not the most beautiful land in the world. And I think sometimes when you think about this land, especially if you've been there, and you think, my goodness, this is the land flowing with milk and honey, that's hardly the case, it doesn't feel that way when you're there. It's a, it's a very prickly land, a land with uh, lots of rocks. But once again, understand that in contrast to the wilderness, and understand that in contrast with the land of slavery, this land of oppression, this land of, uh, you know, wilderness and scratching a living off rocks to the land of promise, this land of, of fertility. So, the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness. We're gonna move forward in our heads chronologically to when they actually arrive in the, uh, in the promised land. Now, this promise that God uh, gives to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this promise that he gives to the Israelites as they're in the wilderness to bring them out of the land of slavery and into the promised land is fulfilled. Of course, you know, uh, God allows the, the first generation to die out in the wilderness brings that second generation in under Joshua. And, uh, but very early on, we see that this utopia is not fully realized. They do arrive there, but it's uh, not, um, well, it's just not fully realized. Let's go ahead and read that Judges passage, uh, Judges 2, verses 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. See that memory again? There's that theme of bringing them up from Egypt. And brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice what is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So first of all, we see that uh, the utopia is not realized because they fail to fully drive out the inhabitants of the land as God commands them. And we see that both in the end of the book of Joshua and in the beginning of the book of Judges, uh, where they do not fully drive out the inhabitants of the land. And therefore, Yahweh says that they're going to be as thorns in your side and a snare. And we very much see that happening because what we'll see in the books ahead here is that the Israelites will synchronize their religions with the religions of the gods around them. Uh, A very important, to bring an archeology span into this, a very important um, inscription was found uh, that's gonna be a little bit later than this, but not by much, which is uh, at Kintilit-Ajrud, which I believe is in the Negev was uh, an inscription found, it's it's a depiction of two deities, and beneath is written uh, a dedication uh, formula, which says dedicated to Yahweh and his Asherah. So first you see two problems. A, there's a depiction of Yahweh, which is explicitly forbidden. Uh, Second, you see that synchronism happening, where uh, Yahweh is brought in with... uh, the gods of the lands, Asherah, Baal. And, uh, and these, these myths and these, and these uh, local religions are merged in the minds of the Israelites, and they'll try to worship both. But of course, uh, we see right there in the Ten Commandments that the Lord is a jealous God, and uh, for the reasons of this and others, um, God's going to send uh, punishment and uh, release his protection from them now we'll see this in particular in the judges cycle since we're here in the book of judges uh, when you read through the book of judges you'll see that it's arranged in several cycles uh, the Israelites are following after God and then they stop and they fall away from the Lord and the Lord releases his protection from them allows the other nations to come in they're uh, they're persecuted they're uh, fought against famines whatever and because of all this, they cry out to God. It's getting to the bottom of the judge's cycle. They cry out to God for deliverance. What does God do at that point? God delivers them a judge, a Deborah or a Barak or a Samson, someone who's going to bring them out. And then God delivers them once again and brings them, restores them back up to that point of prosperity. And then they're in that point of prosperity again, and they rebel. And you've got this whole cycle going over and over and over again. And so you'll see that repeated throughout the book of Judges. And it culminates, and we're not going to go through this whole story because it's a horrible story and it's long, uh, in the story of a Levite and his concubine in Judges 19 through 21. And a key aspect of the book of Judges is that uh, Judges 21 verse 25 will say, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So once again you see this uh, utopia falling apart. Because uh, they this this mutuality this relationship that Yahweh talks about in the wilderness is not seen, and uh, yes, the Lord delivers His people; He brings them into the promised land. But they continually rebel against the Lord, and uh, everyone's doing what they deem right in their own eyes. And you're dealt with this uh, this chaos where there was supposed to be these people loving and serving their Lord as king. Instead, uh, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, the consequence of that, First Samuel chapter 8. They're going to cry out for a king. <coughs> All right, verses 4 through 18. So Judges sets up this need for a king, and when you get into the book of Samuel, now you're going to have the account of the monarchy being established. 8 verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. For the day I brought them up out of Egypt. See, there's, there's that memory again. It's happening again. This key central theological image that they're going to appeal to. Um, From the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, like that inscription that you saw at Kintilat Ajrud. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And Samuel's going to go on to give them a warning about this king. Once again, the utopia uh, is not realized here. Samuel's going to say this king is going to bring you more or less back into that bondage that God brought you out of. Now we're going to fast forward here quite a bit. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. But here, as, as we're fast forwarding, as, as we're turning to that passage, uh, you all are probably pretty familiar with um, Kings and, and Samuel and all the accounts of the kings. As you go through them, uh, the, um, the author will, will talk about how each of these kings, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord, and then the consequences thereof. And as they evaluate each and every king going through them, you see this cycle kind of continuing of rebellion and restoration, um, rebellion and a call to repentance, God's deliverance and God's judgment happening in these cycles over and over and over again. And so when will this uh, cycle be brought to an end? Well, another very key shaping event in the Old Testament is gonna be the exile. Much of the scripture is going to come together around this time period, and so much of the exilic theme will also pervade Scripture. And as we saw last week, Ezekiel is gonna connect that exile to that wilderness theme that has already been established in the Scripture. So let's go ahead and read. <coughs> Excuse me. Jeremiah chapter oh, no, chapter 25 verses 1 through 14. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken persistently to you. But you have not listened, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go After the other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride the girding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, connecting that land of plenty and promise, that land of milk and honey now with that wilderness kind of idea that this land will become a wasteland. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon uh, 70 years. So, uh, and before we keep reading there, don't want to get to the hope too early here. Uh, But allow that to sink in, this realization that Israel consistently rebelled against God. And so once again, God's here saying, because of this, I'm going to bring you back into the wilderness. I'm going to bring you back into the wilderness, take you out of this promised land, this place of relationship with Yahweh, and bring you out into this wilderness. And as we saw in Ezekiel last week, this is our place of refining and purging where the Lord... uh, chastises us, but works in us as well. And we'll see this happening uh, in a very interesting way with the Israelites, because up until this point, and even archaeology can testify to this fact, uh, we will find this syncretism of the uh, serving of Yahweh with the serving of other local deities constantly mixed together, constantly finding idols and all these things you will not, however, find that either in the writings or in the material culture after the exile. From that point forth, Israel will be uh, will have given up those things pretty much permanently. Now, we'll know by the time we get into the Second Temple period, they've got their other issues with Pharisaism and stuff like that. But the worshiping and serving of Baal, Asherah, burning their uh, children as the first fruits of their Uh, fertility all these cultic practices will come to an end now at this point in the exile because of this so you'll see that that purging taking place in a very uh, direct way in that regard now verse 12 then after 70 years are completed i will punish the king of babylon and that nation the land of the chaldeans For their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it. Everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings make slaves, even of them. And I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Let me uh, pause here on this passage as well for a little bit. Just because I think this is one of the most important uh, anchor points of fulfilled prophecy that can be very easily seen uh, in the historical record extra-biblically outside of the Bible. Uh, This is really kind of an amazing thing, and one of the reasons that archaeology is is fairly important, let me sell archaeology for a minute if that's okay, Um, because Uh, prior to the golden days of archaeology let's say 1930s 1940s prior to that uh, there was um, a general critical school of biblical scholarship that uh, had increasingly some of you might be familiar with wellhausen's and some of the other turn of the century uh, critical biblical scholars who um pushed back the baiting of the Old Testament. They said, okay, Moses didn't have anything to do with, Miraculous didn't have anything to do with this. Let's push back uh, the Old Testament into, at first it was, say, maybe the United Monarchy period. And then it was, okay, maybe the time period of Josiah. But eventually you snowball effect with each student trying to outdo the previous generation. Or you have uh, the Copenhagen school, which will say, Virtually, this entire thing is an invention of the post-exilic period. So that is after uh, Cyrus the Great allows the Israelites to return from Babylon back to the land. They're going to say, this was a people that needed to invent a history about themselves. So they effectively invented everything that we read. And uh, they said, even uh, the exile, places like Babylon and Nineveh, this was just a contrivance of these Jews Uh, trying to invent a history of themselves. Well, the amazing thing was that once archaeology really got going, all of a sudden these places were found. Babylon's found, Nineveh's found. You find wall reliefs that talk about the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel coming and paying tribute to the kings of Assyria and Babylon. And many of even the details that we find in Samuel and kings, uh, these cities are being found left and right, and all of a sudden the context of the world of the Bible opens up in a dramatic way, and uh, it really forced even critical secular scholarship to do an about-face at that point. The Copenhagen School at this point is pretty much a a, a severe minority. At this point, uh, many even secular scholars will deal with, yeah, we have to deal with the reality that even someone like David exists so they're going all the way back now to the point of David and saying okay yeah David probably exists now there's debate amongst scholars about what exactly his reign looked like but it's a really amazing thing to see how uh, the context of the world of the Bible has shown to be accurate and true and Archaeology is a, is, a, is a complicated thing because oftentimes it leaves us with more questions than we have answers because when you're dealing with real world stuff, it can be a very complicated uh, endeavor to try to connect the Bible and the material cultural finds that we're uh, discovering. But nevertheless, uh, the the power of it is to demonstrate the world and context of the Bible, all of these sites, uh, what, the, what the people were like, what their lives were like, so that we can better understand the world of the Old Testament. So, okay, I wanted to put in that little commercial there because as we see this uh, prophecy that Jeremiah, who's very historically anchored, there's, no, there's not going to be any debate as to Jeremiah's authenticity and the time period of his living is going to give this very precise prediction. Seventy years, you're going to be out in Babylon. At the end of that, God's going to bring you back. And sure enough, we see that play out pretty much exactly. Uh, Babylon is going to be defeated, and uh, this is going to be recorded more intimately in the book of Daniel. Uh and is going to be replaced uh, by a Medo-Persian alliance. Cyrus the Great is going to come up and he's going to decree that uh, the Israelites may return uh, back to their promised land, back to the land of Israel. But these exiles, so now as we're moving forward in our uh, timeline here, situate yourself now in the wilderness of the exile with the Israelites. And let's go ahead and go to the next slide there. And talk about what some of their expectations were uh, as they were in exile. Now, this is a, a list that I compiled. Uh, go ahead and run through them and just put them all up there. The last one is going to be everything would be set right. And... Okay, good. Excellent. This was a list that I, I put together um, some time ago. but uh, and, it, and it's... Compiled from several different sources, if you want to in your notes, write down Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Uh, much, Many of the components of these expectations can be found there. But really as you read through the prophets and you figure out what kind of expectations, particularly the pre-exilic and the exilic prophets, uh, what kind of expectations they had for their return, you'll see a lot of these different attributes come in different forms uh, in different prophecies. But let me just go through them real quickly. Okay, the first one is kind of the obvious one as well. A return to Israel. Expected to physically be brought back from the land of Babylon to the land of Israel. Freedom. This is an important point because um, in particular, and you might put there in your notes, political freedom in parentheses they very much expected to go back to the way things were before the Babylonians destroyed them. They would be a sovereign uh, people, free from other the oppression of other nation states. The restored temple, number three. Of course, uh, the Babylonians in 586 BC, they destroy the temple. And so a very important point of the prophecies, Ezekiel will talk about this in great depth, is that the temple will be restored and brought back. Also, and once again in that passage in Jeremiah 31, you'll see the importance of restored prosperity. This land, this promised land, of land flowing with milk and honey, will once again have its prosperity destroyed. This desolate wasteland that we just read in Jeremiah chapter 25 will be brought back to the land of promise, the land of the forefathers, the land of milk and honey, and the prosperity of the land Will be returned. Point number five: There, return of the Davidic king. When uh, the Lord makes His covenant with David, He says, "This is going to be an eternal uh, covenant. This is going to be that your reign, the descendants, will never end." Uh, but of course, for the problem of the exiles was, the kingship had been brought to an end. So, part of the expectations of the returns of those in the exile was that uh, a Davidic king would be restored to the throne in Jerusalem. And finally, once again, Jeremiah chapter 31 is going to talk about this new, deeper covenant relationship with Yahweh. Uh, You know what, we're going to have to go to that Jeremiah 31 because there's uh, a passage in there that I want to make sure that we read. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses uh, 31 through 34. So this new deeper covenant relationship, point number six there. Um, Moses in the wilderness establishes this first covenant. Once again, they're in the wilderness of the exile and God's gonna bring them back into the land and establish with them a new covenant. And this new covenant is gonna be a different one. Let's, let's read what um, Jeremiah says in uh, chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Hear that, hear that memory again there. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Did you hear that again? That that intimacy, that relationship, God and his people living together, that's echoing back to that Exodus 6 passage where God says in the promised land, God and his people are going to live together. And no longer, uh, verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, for us as Christians, we read that, and you're immediately thinking, Jesus and the new covenant and restoration from slavery, but put yourself in the mindset of the exiles. This is part of their expectations of what they're heading into as they come back from the land of exile. All right, and finally, and this is going to be found a lot more in Isaiah, but this idea of no more pain, sorrow, or weeping. And finally, everything will be set right. Uh, Let me add there on point number eight that uh, also you will find, you can add this in your notes under point number eight, that uh, in terms of everything will be set right, many of the prophets will talk about the great and glorious day of the Lord, which will be a day of wrath and judgment when Yahweh will come and bring judgment upon the nations. The evildoers will be brought to justice. The righteous will be vindicated. This is the great and glorious day of the Lord, and that's what we mean there by point eight. Uh, the great, uh, finally, everything will be set right. Okay. You can probably already predict this coming. These expectations are not uh, fully realized. Uh, The picture there is a a picture of Herod's temple. It's actually the um, model of Herod's temple in the uh, Israel Museum today. Has anyone been able to see that model in the Israel Museum? Oh yeah, a few of us, okay. Uh, Amazing model, great for being able to sit and do teaching and stuff like that. This was not the temple that they came back to. This is Herod who, uh, to spare no expense, always wants to outdo everybody. And is going to try to make this amazing, incredible temple. But the temple that will be built um, during the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah will be much more modest and uh, and nothing like the beauty and the gl- glory and grandeur of the Temple of Solomon. <coughs> Particular, uh, a couple passages to keep in mind: Ezra three twelve. We won't turn there right now, but someone to put in your notes. Um, That's where, uh, as they're laying out the foundations of the new temple to be restored after they're called back from the exile, uh, the people are going to weep because they say this temple is clearly going to be nothing like the Temple of Solomon. And in Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah, some key post-exilic prophets uh, to keep in mind, they're going to also... Haggai in chapter two is going to be like, yeah, you you guys have said this temple is nothing like the temple that was before. So the exiles come back, the Jerusalem is in shambles. Uh, they rebuild the wall, but the wall is nothing like it was before. The temple is nothing like it was before, and so this uh, utopia, once again, that you see the prophets talking about, is not quite fully realized already. Prophecies have been fulfilled, they've been brought back, they are back in the land. As Jeremiah was talking about that 70 years, uh, they were in exile and they were brought back under the decree of Cyrus the Great. We have that decree, by the way, outside the Bible. There's a cylinder seal that uh, talks about, that's been found, that talks about Cyrus the Great and his declaration of a policy of restoration, allowing peoples to go back to their lands and establishing funds for the local peoples to build temples and to rebuild their society. So once again, the biblical text shows that it's very intimately connected with its historical context and fits well within uh, the land and times that we see extra biblically as well. Freedom is not fully realized. They're still under uh, the Persians and then the Persians will later be replaced by the Greeks and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids going back and forth and eventually, of course, Uh, The Romans. Brief period of independence under the Maccabees. But uh, for the most part, Israel is going to be uh, trapped under foreign rule. Now, God's presence had not entered the temple like it had for Solomon. If you remember in the account when Solomon dedicates his uh, temple, a cloud fills the temple such that the priests could not uh, carry out their uh, duties, because the, the presence of God was so thick in the temple. When Ezra dedicates the temple, you don't see this same event take place. Ezekiel uh, prophesies very vividly about the presence of God leaving the temple as symbolic of the exile and leaving towards the Mount of Olives and then descending on the Mount of Olives and coming back into the temple and this you know, great and glorious event, and this doesn't take place. This leads... Many to think, many of the Jews of this time period, are we still in the exile? Yes, God has already brought us back, but not yet do we see all these prophecies fully revealed. By the time we get into the second temple period, of the time period of Jesus, uh, this idea will still be uh, playing into a lot of the Jewish literature. And this expectation of the Messiah and the day of the Lord is going to be very imminently and present on their minds. Um, but thinking about back to that list, we can stay on this slide, but thinking back to that list of the one through eight, I'll just run through them real quickly. For the returnees of the exiles, how many of these prophecies were fulfilled and how many were not? One, returned to Israel. Is that one fulfilled? Yep, that one was fulfilled. Uh, freedom or political freedom. No. Uh, restored temple. Kind of. They got their temple back, but it's not what they expected. Restored prosperity. Uh, a little bit, but not quite. Return of the Davidic king. No. New, deeper covenant relationship with Yahweh. No. Uh, no more pain, sorrow, or weeping. Definitely not. <laughs> and was everything set right? Definitely not as well. Uh, So Haggai and Zechariah, the post-exilic prophets, they've got an interesting dilemma on their hands because the people's, their their hearts are kind of broken. These expectations that they had coming back from exile were not quite fully realized. So next time as you read through your Bible and you read Haggai and Zechariah, think about this was where the exiles were at, coming back out of their wilderness of exile into the promised land and still feeling like, hey, we're still kind of trapped in the wilderness. Um, So Haggai and Zechariah, Their primary role is to say encouragement. Haggai in particular is going to talk about how, like in Haggai 2, so the temple isn't what you expected. But our covenant relationship with Yahweh is still in effect. And that great and glorious day of the Lord, it's still coming. See how God has been faithful and know that he's going to be faithful again. So once again, here they are standing kind of in the exile looking back in their slavery and oppression and exile in Babylon and looking forward to this great and glorious day of the Lord. Even though they're in the promised land physically, they're still waiting for this beautiful relationship with Yahweh, this mutuality, God and his people living together, this uh, new covenant that Jeremiah talks about where they won't have to say, know the Lord for they shall all know me. All right, let's go ahead and, you can tell I'm an Old Testament person when I condense my New Testament stuff to one slide <laughs> but uh, but this is so key to I think understanding how much uh, of this trajectory that we're heading through in the Old Testament is coming together and culminating in the point of Jesus coming so Jesus comes and he begins the kingdom of God. Uh, we will see, and once again, we'll go through that list of the expectations. When Jesus comes, what extra things are fulfilled that weren't before? So freedom. How about freedom from death and slavery to sin? Absolutely. Does he establish that new covenant that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah chapter 31? Yeah, he does. We did the Passover on Thursday, and remember when Jesus takes that, Maybe it was the third glass of wine in the, in the Seder service. And he says, this time, this cup is going to represent the new covenant. And by drinking this, you are entering with me into this new covenant. And the disciples, they're connecting it with these Old Testament passages. And they know, yeah, all this trajectory, all the things that's been building up. We are here experiencing the, 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 the beginning of this new covenant, this new deeper covenant relationship uh, with Yahweh. And I love how the disciples, even up until the very last moment when Jesus is about to go into heaven, uh, I think it's Peter who asks, Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still expecting this uh, political freedom. They still have this idea in their head of what this day of the Lord is going to be like. And of course, Jesus' whole thing is talking about the kingdom of God is this much bigger thing than any of them could realize and uh, and even at that point, Peter is still not quite getting it. So, uh, freedom—that one got fulfilled. Um, return of the Davidic king, yes, because Jesus is a descendant of David, and Jesus is going to. Jesus is the king of this new kingdom. New deeper covenant relationship with Jesus, absolutely. Is there now no more pain, sorrow, or weeping? Well, we're not. We're not there yet. I'm sick, I can testify to that now. Has everything been set right? ISIS is still beheading Christians. We're still in a place of this uh, wilderness uh, in place. But because this is, of course, a few days after Easter, we've got to connect this with uh, the resurrection. So let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 14. This is this is such a key verse, and if Christ had not been raised, this is verse fourteen. If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was his victory over death, sealing his our freedom from uh, from sin. Uh, once again, reflecting that Jeremiah thirty one passage that. Uh, we will be delivered from our sin and our bondage because of the cross and because of the resurrection, because of the empty tomb. Uh, death has, uh, you know, death, where is your sting? Where is your, uh, what's the other sin of death? Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Uh, for Christ has been raised from the dead. Uh, and now skipping down to verses uh, 20, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Okay, now listen there. Let me reread that, read that verse there verse twenty four then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and and power on our list of expectations, which number does that one connect with that last one number eight finally everything would be set right this great and glorious day of the Lord this day of judgment, every uh, rule and authority uh, God's going to destroy these earthly powers. For he must reign until, so His reigning. Jesus is the king, this Messiah that's been prophesied in the Old Testament. Paul's connecting with all this stuff because Paul knows this stuff too. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected uh, expected who put all things in subjection under him. The resurrection is so key and so central uh, to our faith and to our hope that we have already seen all these prophecies be fulfilled. That list of expectations is pretty much all fulfilled right up until that point of no more pain, sorrow, or weeping, and everything will be set right. And these are things that are not yet here. So we exist here now under this new covenant in the kingdom of God, seeing all that God has already done and knowing that because all this has already been done, we can have hope in our wilderness in the midst of our current circumstances for what has not yet uh, come to pass. So what is... This new kingdom that we're going to, uh, this great and glorious day of the Lord, what's it going to look like? John in Revelation is going to connect with this as well. Revelation chapter 21. And just here is as you uh, as you read these passages, see that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is connecting with all the prophets that are coming before him all these things that they were talking about, the great and glorious day of the Lord that's coming. Uh, John in the book of Revelation is gonna echo that here even in this passage about this wonderful expectation of what, has, what is yet to come. All right, we'll start out right in verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And when you hear that phrase, did you hear it? That same type of phrase, maybe different words, different language at this point, but that same idea, God and his people together. That idea that goes all the way back to Exodus 6, When God's telling Moses what the promised land is going to be like, this utopia, God and his people intimately together in relationship. What does Jeremiah talk about when he talks about the return and the great and glorious day of the Lord? God and his people being together. And here John the Revelator is going to talk about the same thing. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You hear all those themes coming through even now in the book of Revelation. This theme of what this great and glorious day of the Lord is gonna be like. No more pain, sorrow, or weeping. Death shall be no more. And everything will be finally set right. Uh, this utopia that has not yet been realized in all of these manifestations from the Old Testament to the New Testament now can be uh, can be fully realized. So there is hope. Here we are in our wilderness, uh, and I think you know, connecting with last week too, we talked about how uh, we go through wildernesses and. Uh, as uh, Marty was bringing out once again, this is a place where you hear the voice of God, where God shapes us and calls us and forms us. But the wilderness is not our destination. This is a place of our sojourning, where we're aliens and foreigners looking forward to our home, which is this, this promised land. And as inheritors of God's people, me as a Gentile being brought in, inheriting these same promises I also look forward, and you also look forward to this great and glorious day of the Lord. And so uh, we can have hope. And so I think it's very important when you read the Bible how important memory is uh, to remember what God has done. In the midst of our difficult circumstances, in the midst of our worst situations, this is when we're supposed to remember God's faithfulness. Now, this is not just remembering... um, what God has done in our lives, although I think that's is important, but it's also remembering that you're part of this bigger picture, this bigger story that's going on. You've inherited the story of the Israelites. It's one of the reasons uh, I like doing the Passover is because now this is our story as well of redemption from slavery and suffering uh, because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so this is part of our story to remember and remember this big picture, uh, in the midst of those difficult circumstances, like I said last week, we're such momentary creatures. Uh, We can so easily get isolated like the Israelites did in the wilderness uh, and thinking only about our current difficulties and circumstances, Um, but that is the wilderness. There will be difficulties and circumstances, but keep that big picture in mind. Uh, So I hope that this will be encouraging to you guys tonight. He is risen, and for that reason, uh, we can have hope. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Lord, I just thank you so much for the, uh, for the hope that we have in you. Thank you that you are our risen Lord, who is intimately present here with us tonight. And that even now, we can enter into this new covenant relationship. Already, we can experience freedom from bondage. We can experience healing by your blood and by your presence that comes into our lives, Lord. We can already experience these parts of the new covenant. So Lord, I pray that uh, no matter where each one of us are at tonight, that we would be reminded of your presence and how we can have this new deeper covenant relationship with you and that even now we can truly know you and, and know you better, so, Lord, I pray that each one of us would be challenged by this and that whatever circumstances we may be in now or in the future, that you would help us to remember and help us to see uh, this bigger picture and this bigger story of what you're doing. Help us to have faith and trust in the midst of our difficult circumstances uh, to know that you are working even in the midst of all that and that your voice is present in the midst of our wildernesses, but we can still have hope even in the midst of our pain. So thank you, Lord Jesus, and I just praise you for how amazing your story is and how amazing um, your word is. And so I pray that uh, we would just be encouraged to go and study you more and know your word better. And uh, we pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.